0: We believe that God's word is valuable, that it has authority over our lives, and therefore that we should listen to it. Again, this is uh, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in ephes And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead to verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried and vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know, that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing on it this evening. Father, we look at passages like this of combat, war in the ancient world, and at times we might struggle to figure out how to apply it to our lives. In our day and age where we wrestle with Spiritual things where we wrestle with anxiety, wrestle with discouragement, or, or just sin itself, Lord, uh, we need encouragement. We need you to show us the way to live. We need you to strengthen our hearts and to help us to see your grace and mercy in your son Jesus. I pray that as we look at this passage, that as we look at this story of David and Goliath, this famous story, that... That you would help us to see the ways that you are communicating information and truth about you and about your son to us. The ways that you are communicating the gospel, the good news of your son Jesus Christ, even in this Old Testament story, in this Old Testament account of historical events. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to see the ways that you are at work even now in this passage in our lives. I pray that you would give me all strength and wisdom and clarity as I speak to explain these things in a way that is good and true and helpful for the building up of all of these people here tonight. I pray that you would bless us, that you would keep us and provide for us. I pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. A few years ago, there was a movie by the director Christopher Nolan called Dunkirk that came out. I don't know if any of y'all saw it. But it's, the, it's a true story about the evacuation in 1940 of the British army from France after France had surrendered and the Nazi armies had invaded France. The British army was trapped against the sea. And this massive undertaking of naval ships, but also civilian ships, came and evacuated them off the beaches of this place called Dunkirk. And there's a scene in the movie where this, this uh, boat, this trawler full of British soldiers and they're fleeing across the English Channel and the worst possible thing happens. A dr- they, they hear the, the drone of an engine, and then they see over the horizon a bomber approaching, a German bomber. This is a, a trawler full of like evacuated soldiers. They have no guns to fight back with. They have no ways to defend themselves. And so they are literally helpless. And then, at the last moment, they're like, man, we're, we're, we're doomed. There's nothing we can do. Until at the last moment, Tom Hardy appears flying a British airplane, and he proceeds to like have a you know an aerial battle with this german bomber right the men on the ground are completely dependent on the outcome of the battle in the air or in the boat they're not on the ground they're on the water even though they are not taking part at all they they have no effect on the outcome of the aerial battle but they are completely for their lives dependent upon the outcome of that battle i want you to see that we are seeing something very similar happen in this story about david tonight. This is a really it's there's a lot of verses. I read a lot of verses. There's even more that I didn't read, but but it's all relevant. It's all important for us to understand as we are trying to ask the question what God is trying to help us to see in this passage. Because I'm sure all of you have heard some version of the story of David and Goliath. I'm sure many of you have heard some form of teaching. There was a movie in 2006 that came out called Facing the Giants, which is just a sort of a retelling of sorts of the story of David. And it gets retold in a way that it is often taught in this movie, Pacing the Giants. If you haven't seen it, it's a like really cringy like Christian movie. Like, most Christian movies are pretty cringy, but this one was especially cringy, um, where it's this it's like of this guy who's a football coach of a high school football team and like everything in his life's terrible and then he like finds God, and he like prays really hard and he believes really hard, and like everything turns around and like like it almost implies if you believe hard enough and trust God enough Then he'll reward you by giving you a new truck. He'll let you win the state championship in football against a team called the Giants, where a kicker named David kicks the winning field goal. Come on. Um, And and even he, like, at the end of the story, he, like, I'm not joking, this is in the movie. He, like, because the coach believes hard enough, his, like, God allows his infertile wife to get pregnant. Like, all of his problems are solved just by, like, believing hard enough. Right? In a way, it's saying, oh, you can just be like David. If you can just believe hard enough and try hard enough and be faithful enough, you can be like David and you can defeat the Goliaths in your own life. That's what the movie's trying to say. Maybe some of y'all have heard that before. I want you to see that that's really getting the story wrong. It's, it's missing the point. This story is not about David as an example for us to follow. It's not a story about David as an example for us to follow, but it's a story about David as a recipient of God's grace and as an agent of God's grace. The point is not, oh, be like David, and you can defeat the Goliaths in your life. Right? Like What I want you to see in this is that in his single combat with Goliath, David is representing Israel. And in David, when David wins, Israel wins. God sent David to save the Israelites, to be, literally, a savior for them. God sent another savior for his people later, and that savior won his battle too, but we will get to that. The main thing that I want you to see tonight, if you don't get anything else, because God sent a savior for his people, his people have victory in that savior. Like, as the savior's battle goes, so go the people who are in that savior. There are two aspects of the story I want to focus on, two kind of elements I want you to see. The first is the enemy. We're going to focus on, we're going to look at the enemy, kind of ask the question, who is the enemy? What does that mean? And secondly, we're going to look at the battle. What is the battle? What's the outcome and what does that mean for us? First is the enemy. We see the Philistines in in the first kind of 10 verses, the Philistines are gathering an army for battle. They're this country of people that is geographically right next to Israel and they're a constant rival and threat. They worship different gods, and they are continually attacking and trying to enslave the Israelites. We see them first appear in the book of Judges, I think, and they continually be a thorn in Israel's side up until uh, the end of the Old Testament. And so Saul has moved his army to sort of the, the frontier between Philistine and Israel in order to confront them. The Valley of Elah it's a geographic place. And the Israelites are on one side of the valley, and the Philistines are on the other side of the valley. And then something happens maybe that Saul didn't expect. A man named Goliath comes out. He comes out, he, he, he comes out as the sort of stated and uh, honored champion of the Philistines and challenges someone in the armies of Israel to single combat. Right? He says, uh, you know, choose a guy. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I went against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us the word that's translated as servant probably is closer to slave. The Philistines are offering this single combat thing. And the reason that Saul and the Israelites have not taken up on it is because they are afraid. They do not think that they can win. By the way, this is the kind of thing that you only do if you are so confident in both single combat or kind of regular battle that it doesn't really matter which way it goes like you're gonna win the, the philistines are basically like trash talking the israelites here they don't they they are so confident in themselves in their military and their weapons that there is nothing that israel can do against them so they send goliath out like they wouldn't send goliath out to make this kind of deal unless they were absolutely 100 percent confident in either type of combat of being able to win we see some weird measurements here goliath of gath his height was six cubits in a span that translates to roughly like nine or ten feet high. Uh, he's, a, he's a very, very tall, strong man. He's wearing armor that weighs 126 pounds. And the head of his spear weighs about 15 or 20 pounds. This is like the peak of military technology for this era. He is armed with all of the weapons and armor and equipment that money could buy. He is basically impervious and invincible. Only someone who is just as strong as him you would think, would be able to take him down, right? It's been 40 days and nights that the Israelites are sitting here watching this guy come out and yell at them, make fun of them, belittle them, belittle God. Why? Like, why do they put up with that? Why have they not responded to his challenge yet? Goliath, I mean, on the surface of it, it, maybe it seems obvious, Goliath looks fearsome. He looks mighty. He looks strong. He looks scary. He has strength, he has weapons, he has brutality. But notice what I'm leaving out. Those are all outward things. Those are all things that you can see externally. Literally in the last chapter, in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel comes to anoint David, God tells Samuel, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? The Lord is able to see the truth, reality of things that is behind the outward appearance. Goliath seems scary and terrifying, but the only reason that Saul and the other Israelites are terrified of him is because that they don't believe that God can do anything about it. They are limited in their imaginations to, okay, what is, what is the practical, realistic military situation right here? They're only thinking about what can ordinarily happen. Saul and the Israelites are only thinking about things of this world. They're not thinking that God is going to show up in any way. Right? It's true that that when God is choosing the king to rule Israel, the right king that he sees in the heart, but it's also true when they're thinking about facing the enemies of God's people, that God sees the reality of things. He sees past the outward appearances. He sees, you know, the ways, moreover, that he is working to bring salvation to his people, even if it seems unlikely. Right, and David knows this throughout this story. David uh, isn't mentioned until pretty later, pretty much later in the story. David is not in the army; he's not a soldier. He is too young to do that. His three older brothers, we met them last week: Eliab, Abner, and Shammah. They're all; they've all been enlisted in King Saul's army, and David is bringing them uh, some treats from home. He's bringing them like cheese and, and bread and stuff and he get he happens to be in the camp and he hears Goliath issuing this challenge and David's like all right like we got to do something about this let's go and because because David he knows right he knows that it's god who has the power it's god who has the power over what is going to happen it's god who delivers his people it's not strength of arms it's not how sharp your spear is it's not how thick your armor is it's the work of the lord David has what we could call a God-dominated view of the world, or a God-centric view of the world. When David sees a problem, he is thinking about, okay, like God is in the midst of this somehow. In a way that Saul and all the Israelites had laid aside. In a way that Saul and all the the Israelites had sort of rejected. If you think about it, Israel was at the brink of losing its identity. Not Not just the battle, but losing themselves spiritually by accepting a worldly way of looking at the world, of of looking at their problems. You could say that they're they're judging things in the same way that Goliath is judging them. They're buying into this idea that it's the people with the strongest arms, the sharpest weapons that win the day. right? God is opposing the people of God, but there are actually two other characters in this story that have very Goliath-like hearts, we could say. The first is David's brother Eliab. When David gets to the camp... Eliab, like, yells at him and scolds him in a way that I, as an older brother, I guess could understand if you see your younger brother doing something that you're like, I don't know, like, why are you doing this? Uh, But Eliab's like, you are wicked. You have just come to watch the battle. You need to be back home to hear of the sheep. There's no reason for you to be here. Right, David, his older brother isn't even, like, welcoming him in. David is insignificant. Eliab is only thinking in terms of how can we beat this Goliath? How can we beat the Philistines through conventional means? The second sort of person with a Goliath-like heart is Saul. Right? David volunteers. David's like, I'm going to do it. And, and they bring him to Saul, and Saul's like, there's no way. If I let this kid go, I'm sending him to his death. And he tries to help him by giving him armor and a sword. But deep down, Saul does not think that David can do anything. He does not believe, and not just that David can't do anything, there's a reason they've been sitting there for 40 days. Saul doesn't think that they can win at all. He doesn't think there's anything they can do. He thinks it's hopeless. And so David goes out to face the enemy against the worries of King Saul, against the ridicule of his brother Eliab. He goes out with no armor. He goes out with no weapons. He's just wearing like cloth robes, a tunic. And to everyone watching, like the, the, the Israelites sitting on one side and they're in Cammon, the Philistines sitting on the other side, they, it looked like a child going out into the ring with a grown warrior. Everyone must have thought that David was going to die out there. But I want you to think about and and turn the the lens back on yourself and self-reflect for a second, because you and I do this every day, not in actual military combat, but we assume that a lot of the daily battles and struggles that we fight can only be fought with the weapons or the tools that the world says is helpful. We do this same thing whether it is investing with our time in things that are not helpful, whether it is seeing a, a difficult situation that we're in and maybe turning to dishonest ways to try to get out of it, try to get ahead. Maybe it's a test that you have that is a lot harder than you thought it was, and you think, well, if I, if I bend the rules, if I cheat a little bit just this time, that'll be okay, but I, I have to get out of it. I have to I have to get ahead. Tim Keller talks about this, he talks about when he was in high school his parents pressured him to sign up for all of these clubs. Tim Keller's is an author and pastor who passed away last year. His parents pressured him to sign up for all these like clubs and extracurricular activities like you should join the chess club, you should do theater, you should do journalism, you should do track and field. And he wasn't like he wasn't interested in any of them. He was like guys like I don't want to do this. Why are you pressuring me to to do all of these things? And their response was well, it'll it'll look really good on your resume. It'll look really good on your college application. Living for your resume is one way I think that that one tangible way that we can think of of fighting your the battles of your life with the weapons of the enemy, if you can think about in those terms. Like something we're seeing in this is like that, that we shouldn't do that because if we start using the tools and the weapons of the world thinking in terms of self-rule and self-sufficiency, only thinking of outward appearances, we're going to be trapped. We're not going to see the things that God God is doing in our lives. We're going to just kind of fall away. Uh, One of two things will happen. If we're really good at it, if you're successful, then you'll start to feel arrogant, prideful. Yeah, I did make myself. I have got there on my own. I am enough in myself. You'll start to judge other people. How come they couldn't get it together? Or that person isn't bringing anything into the relationship. That person isn't helping me to get where I want to go, so I'm going to disconnect from them. So that's one negative thing. You'll feel successful, and you'll buy into the ways of the world that way. Or maybe you'll feel like a failure. You'll be anxious, lonely, like Saul, depressed. Depressed. You'll disconnect from others because you fear their disapproval or because you're always anxiously self reflecting upon yourselves, thinking about, oh man, did I say this right? Did this person have the right perception of me? Right? Like, both of those ways of living are fundamentally focused on yourself. It's looking at yourself apart from any interaction with God that could exist. Right? We know that God actually chooses the unlikely to save. That God saves people without their being involved. Like, the, the practical application from this is like, as we consider the enemies of God in this passage, like, look at God, not yourselves. Goliath and Eliab and Saul were only looking at themselves and their own situation. But David was looking at God, right? Use the weapons that God gives you, Christian community. RUF, that's kind of weird to say, but like this is a tool, this is a weapon that God has given you to grow in your awareness and understanding of his grace. Use his word, the Bible, read it, meditate upon it. This is a tool that he has given you to grow and to learn about him. Worship, prayer, being involved in a church, asking him for help. The point of these weapons, right, is not to be strong in yourself, but rather God has given us these weapons that often don't really necessarily feel that helpful to remind us that he's the one who saves right like the goal of your christian life is not to become super strong and powerful so that you can be like elite like david i think the main thing that god is trying to do is to help you to see your weakness so that you will fall upon his grace all the more like paul writes uh, about his thorn he says you know, that he has this thorn, he has this issue, and that he pleads with the Lord that the Lord would remove this thing, something that if it was removed, you know, we would say, ah, oh, that's growth for Paul. But Paul recounts that God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Our salvation is in him, and he is not going to let us rely on things that that muddy the waters with that. As David enters the valley of Elah, Like, he knows this. To the outside observer, there seems to be two options, right? Like, the way of Goliath, brutality, success, crushing other people, or the way of Saul, anxiety and worry. But David shows another way. He's calm, he's trusting in God and his plans and God's promises, trusting in the Lord. And it's in this sort of spirit that he goes to face Goliath, right? Like I said before, imagine the contrast between these two figures. Goliath, massive, armor clad, carrying a sword and a spear and a shield, right? The full military fighting machine of the ancient world. And then there's David, who is short and scrawny. He's got a sling, which is like a long piece of like leather with a you know fashioned in a certain way, and he has a few like pebbles in his hand. You would know exactly how this fight was gonna go before it started. And then they start to talk to each other. And I think their discussion is kind of like interesting uh, in these verses here. It, it shows what's really going on. Goliath talks some trash. He says, you know, I'm going I'm to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. Um, and then David kind of claps back at him and he, he reveals what's really going on. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and so on and so forth. Right? David is fighting this battle on a different level from Goliath. Like In a sense, the war that's happening is in a different realm, in a different dimension than the one between David and Goliath. The real battle is spiritual. Right? Goliath is coming at David with physical weapons, but David is coming at Goliath in the name of God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The God who acts in mighty and miraculous ways, however he wishes, throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament. And David says, in this battle, it actually belongs to him. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who has the battle. It's the Lord who's going to defeat Goliath. And so they fight. Like David shoots a stone from his sling at Goliath, and it hits him right in the forehead, and he falls over dead. It says in verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then just to make it clear, the text says, there was no sword in the hand of David. He takes a sling and he whips it at Goliath. And that's it. Goliath's dead. He wins a very unlikely victory. And I think for us, like, we are so invested in trying to read things like this to say, okay, like, uh, how can we read this in the most human-centric way possible. It might be easy for us to read this and to say, oh, wow, David was really brave. He was faithful. He was actually, like, secretly really strong or buff, or he was like a really good sniper with that sling or something like that. But that's kind of missing the point. Like, throughout this story, David is saying that, oh, God's the one who fights the battle. God's the one who decides who wins, not me. There's a point earlier in the passage where... uh, David is telling Saul that he's, like, been in dangerous situations before. He's like, yeah, I've faced bears and lions. But what he actually says is that um, that it's the Lord who delivered me from the hand of the lions and the bears. Like, it's not David saying, yeah, I've fought these wild animals. He's saying, God protect me from them, and he's going to protect me from Goliath as well. It's the Lord who wins the battle. God is the one who decides who wins. It's God who delivers David. Right? And so David wins. He, he wins because of God's grace and mercy, because God appoints a Savior to save his people. And then he empowers him with the ability to do that. That's the story of David. David is saving the people of God. Right? It's not just David who wins the battle, by the way. All of Israel wins the battle. All of God's people win the battle because David wins. If you think about it, all of God's people are actually represented in David, because he is their champion. We see after the, the, the passage that I read, you know, the the battle goes on and the Philistines are defeated. They just start running away as soon as they see Goliath go down. And the Israelites win this massive victory because of David, not because of them, because of David. Right? We are you and I are not on the battlefield in the same way that David is. But the same way that David was. Like if you put yourself in this story, if you imagine like a character that you would be in this story. If you are following Jesus, like, you and I would be on the side of the Israelites in their encampment, like, hiding in our tents. That's where we would be. Like, let's be real. That is where you and I would be. That's where the average Christian would be. Because we are in the people of God, and our Savior would be out there fighting for us. There's a sense in which Israel is on the team with David, but they're not fighting the battle with him. And so when David wins, Israel wins. My sister, I have two sisters. One of my sisters went to UNC Chapel Hill, uh, which some of y'all might know is uh, one of the most successful college basketball programs in history. She was there from like 2014 to 2018. And she played in the marching band, like her whole time there, she plays clarinet. And a lot of times she would get to attend basketball games with the team. Sometimes you would attend away games. Uh, there were a couple times that she went to like the March Madness tournament as well. It's pretty cool. In 2016, she was a sophomore in college. And the Tar Heels went to the championship game. They went to the national championship. And they lost to Villanova with a buzzer beater. It was heartbreaking for her. Like, she still remembers, we've talked about this a lot, she remembers being in this auditorium, right? She couldn't go to the national championship game, but they, um, they had, like, literally thousands of Chapel Hill students in this big auditorium where they're watching the final game, and they lose at the buzzer beater, and she remembers just this, like, silence that settled over the crowd. And people were like crying. People were like lying on the ground, just like, what the heck just happened? Like, professors canceled classes that week. That's how big of a deal it was for them. Their team lost, and there's a real sense in which she and her friends, she and her classmates, lost with them. And then the next year, the Tar Heels returned to the national championship game, and then they won. And she was in the marching band still, and they had this parade through Chapel Hill through downtown, like it was it that there was this parade that just turned into like this party with thousands of people, people were cheering and screaming in the streets all night, even though none of those people were on the team, probably none of them had attended the championship game, none of them were on the court, only a few of them ever got to go to a basketball game because there's so many people that want to go, they have to have a lottery system. And yet when the team won, they won too. And their role as fans, as a marching band after the fact, it wasn't to play or contribute. Their job was to celebrate and to bask in the victory that their champions had won for them. In a similar way, like my sister winning in the UNC Tar Heel basketball team in 2017, like Israel winning in David, you and I have a champion too, if you believe in Jesus. If you follow Christ, you have a champion too, you have a savior. The Israelites faced Goliath, this fighting man of the ancient world, But you and I face a far more deadly enemy, the Bible says, sin and death. Sin and death are the things that threaten us. Our sin and God's just and righteous wrath against it, and death, which is the penalty for all sin. But God in love sent Jesus to be our champion, to take our sins upon himself and to die for them on the cross, and to put death to death, to conquer it and to rise from the grave, and he did it. He, he, he already accomplished that in time, in space. It's already happened. The victory is already won. Through ways that the world would call weakness, right? Not a small shepherd boy with just a sling facing off against an armored giant, but by going to the cross and dying himself for us. It doesn't get more weak than a dead body. Jesus went and did that. Dying himself, Jesus actually won victory over sin and death for you and me in that moment. For all who believe in him, for all who are willing to say, you know, I can't win on my own. I need a savior. I need a champion. That's for you, if you'll receive. If you're here tonight and you're not, you have not yet received that, if you have not yet said that to yourself, acknowledge that to Jesus. I invite you to do that now. He's, his arms are open to receive you. And he freely gives his love and grace and mercy to all who come to him. So if these things are true, the practical application then for whether you're a believer or not is to believe and to remember that Jesus has conquered, that he has won the victory already. Believe and to remember that you have a champion who has defeated your enemy for you. Right? Like the Israelites, they didn't fight the battle. They just lived in the consequences of the battle. They lived in the victory of it. They lived as if the Philistines were defeated. For you and I, the consequences of the battle is that that we get to live like we are going to have eternal life. Because in Christ we will. Remembering what Jesus has done for us. One pastor wrote this, faith is sustained in the present as long as it remembers God's works in the past. If we continually remember this victory that Jesus has won for us, we will continue in faith. Our part is to remember what God has done in Christ and to celebrate, right? Like like both literally and metaphorically, to live a life of celebration and joy due to Jesus having won the battle for us. Right? To to sound the trumpets, to play the music, sometimes literally, music team, thank you. Um but but and practically, right, that sometimes looks like worship, but other times it looks like living like you're not afraid of sin and death. Knowing that you are freed from its sting, freed from its pain. Right, like living in a way that God's victory over sin and death is true. And I think a couple examples of that is inviting other people into that. Like if you are in a victory parade, going to the best party of all time, and you want your friends to come with. Like you want the bystanders to be like, "Let's all go together." Invite other people into this reality, sharing the good news of Jesus with them. That could look like inviting people to RUF. It might not. It might look like inviting people to your local church. It might mean just talking about things with friends or loved ones. Another thing that it means could be like reminding yourselves that Jesus has conquered. If you're in a difficult situation, if you are in, uh, just, just a, having a hard time remembering that Jesus has defeated sin and death, and so any suffering that you might experience in this life is for a moment when you look at the eternal perspective that you have in him reminding yourselves, reminding others that Jesus has conquered sin and death. i want to close with this idea that, that I think will lead into a lot of the rest of the things that we talk about this semester. Um, it's really interesting in this passage that Saul sits on the sidelines the way he does. If you remember the first week, the Israelites, one of the main things that they ask for in a king is someone who's going to fight their battles for them. And Saul is very Absent. In the midst of all this. One of the jobs of the king is to lead Israel into battle and to fight their battles for them, but Saul can't do it. This passage is showing that David is the guy. He's the man of God's choosing, the one that God has sent to deliver his people. The one that God chooses to be the savior can actually accomplish victory. David was that man in history for these people, and Jesus is that man today for me and you. Jesus has won victory and with it the spoils, eternal life, infinite joy with God. He invites you into that reality tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for not leaving us to fight our own battles, but in appointing a Savior for us such that if we believe in Him, all who believe in Him would have eternal life. I pray that we would live into that life, that we would not fall back or act like we were perishing. Because, Lord, you have promised a greater hope for us. I pray for each one of these students that they would be transformed and encouraged and built up. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen.